Welcome to the podcast. This is Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. I appreciate you listening. I have a conversation that I had recently with David Wilson to share with you today. Before I get to it, I have my announcements. Um, Three events worth putting on your calendar, uh, depending on where you're at. Hopefully more to come. Um, The first is I'm going to be facilitating Infinite Play in Miami, Florida, on June 19th, which is a Saturday. Um, It's at 9 a.m. If you're in the Miami area, I would love to see you there. Um, You can sign up by going to movementbrooklyn.com. There should be a link uh, to the sign-up page there. Um, the following event uh, I'm super excited about. Um, I think as I mentioned last week, Alexa and I are, are leaving Boulder, um, but I will be back to be a part of this big movement research camp that um, Block 1750 has organized in July. Um, so it's going to be a, a five-day event starting on July 12th, going to July 16th. It'll be um, uh, from 9 to 1 every day, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And there are going to be uh, a whole bunch of, of different teachers coming from different disciplines, sharing their ideas and their approaches, um, everything from dance to parkour to hand balancing. And... Uh, I'll be a part of that. I'm I'm really excited to come back and, and do it. So if uh, if you're in the Boulder area, if you're in the Colorado area, or if you want to come and spend a week in the Boulder area, I strongly recommend uh, checking this event out. I think it's going to be a, a really, uh, really fun time. Um, so if you want to sign up for that, you can go to uh, the Blocks website which is block1750.com and I think it's under like um, workshops or intensives there Um, but we'll also put a link on the Movement Brooklyn page so you can sign up for it there as well Um, yeah super excited about that Um, right after that event I'm going to hop on a plane and head down to San Diego and on July 18th which is a Sunday at 10am I'll be facilitating infinite play and if you're in that area somewhere in southern california or you want to get get to that area that's where i'll be um again i'm really excited about it i think it's going to be fun um yeah we'll be out in the park all my events are outdoors so uh yeah that's what you can expect I think those are my announcements. I think there will be more coming up um, in the future with more events. Um, But for now, that's what I've got. So let's get to this. I got to speak with David Wilson recently, um, who is is based up in, in Ontario, in Canada. And um, I don't know, I've been, I've been, paying close attention to, to what he's putting out there in the world through the social media. And I'm, I'm always 
drawn in by his passion for curiosity and creativity. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, to, to get to speak to him about these things and, and so much more, and, uh, and we did. If you're not familiar with David, let me give you a, a, a little bit of his background from his bio here. Um, as a professional educator, David brings a lifelong interest in how people learn to both his teaching and practice of movement. He believes that movement is a birthright and that by combining curiosity, playfulness, and compassionate self-awareness, anyone can practice movement in ways that will interest them, support them, and evolve with them as their lives and bodies change. He is deeply interested in how people might use creativity, critical thinking, and the spirit of inquiry as tools of movement, especially as they age. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. So let me not waste any more of our time. Let's get to it. This is my conversation with David Wilson. The vast majority of my career has been as a high school teacher or um, a high school teacher teaching either English or uh, information digital literacy. Okay, for how many years? 30. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and why did you stop teaching? A um, couple of reasons. Uh, this, okay, I can, I can be candid about this, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, something that happened in the school where I taught was it went from a school for everybody. In fact, it was one of the reasons that really attracted me to that school. So when I started teaching at the school that I retired from, it was a school that had the regular kids, what you would identify as the regular kids, but also a program uh, for the hearing impaired, also a program for the uh, developmentally delayed, and also uh, programs for the gifted and talented. So it was very much it felt like a community school with a whole bunch of different folks in the same place and it created a really cool sort of synergy. Toward the end of my career because of a common problem both in the United States and Canada, which is dwindling enrollment, the decision was made to turn that school into an international baccalaureate school. Mm. And I, could not and cannot really subscribe to that idea of um, within a public education system, uh, two different tiers of education. And I'm not even particularly sure that I, uh, ad- that, that I would subscribe to uh, the program itself, even if it weren't at an added cost. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I had difficulty seeing teaching resources, teaching effort, um, teaching dollars, so much effort having to be expended uh, toward the development of the international baccalaureate programs within the school and within other schools in the region where I taught that those emotional, intellectual, um, energetic resources were being taken away from the generalized population. So. I decided that my years of 
trying to create change within the system had been productive, but that this was not a battle that I was going to win, nor one that at that point in my career, I particularly wanted to fight. Mm -hmm. well, I, I admire that because I feel like oftentimes people are in situations that either start as or evolve to not align with their values and, and struggle to reconcile with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I admire that, that it was like, well, this is not in line with, with the value system for me. So mm -hmm. I, will, I will take a step in another direction. Right. And you know, I was I was developing um, other interests as well that were that were drawing me, um, and I just felt that it was the right time. Mm -hmm. I think one of the th the saddest things, and that it actually happens quite commonly for teachers, is that they retire uh, too late. So they retire too late to enjoy their retirement. Mm -hmm. So they retire when already their you know significant health issues or whatever. And uh, you know, I feel. I feel still vital and energetic and I, I, I like enjoying my life and, you know, starting um, wherever I'm going to be moving forward as a movement coach. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really, you know, quite excited by that. And uh, it's fun to take on something that I've never taken on before and to see just what I can do with it. Mm -hmm. Just be curious about that. Not really move forward with any, you know, great expectations, but to seeing where it can go and how I can still be of benefit to the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I love seeing what you put out there, especially like amid COVID there's like this, like, I don't know, like warmth to the space that you're practicing in there. And this reminder that, um, I don't know, we can celebrate simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, th I, I admire that. Well, well, thank you for that, because I think that, in fact, my most common delights mm -hmm. are, are the simplest ones. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in the culture in which we live, there's sometimes a sense that it has to be big in order to be worthwhile. Um, but I think that there's a, a real delight, a real joy to be had in, in the small as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like, you know, the human experience, right? It's like, you know, it's almost as if like uh, nowadays our, our senses are, are lit up to a point where people struggle to celebrate like the, the small things, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I, I think I've talked about this before, but I remember we went to this, we were visiting Mallorca in Spain and we got to go to this really old church and having not done a lot of traveling, you know, we don't see many really old things in the United States. Mm -hmm. But you go to a place like that and this, you know, church might've been built in the 11 or 1200s mm -hmm. and you go in and there's this beautiful like stained glass up on the ceilings. And when the sun comes out, it hits the glass and this, these colors beam across the ceiling. And wow. where we're at now though, in history, you know, we're, we're so overly stimulated that if we saw that it doesn't, it doesn't light us up in the same way. But at well, that I, time. I wonder if it's that we don't even see it. Right. Because we're so, we're so in our own heads about, you know, what I just posted on Instagram or what this person might think of me or these five other things that I need to do that we have a lot of difficulty 
really just seeing what's coming in through our eyes, hearing what's coming in through our ears. One of the great gifts of COVID for me is I've started listening to birds. <laughs> I, have, I have two dogs. I take the dogs out every morning for their walk. And it used to be that that was largely planning time for me. Yeah, I'd be with the dogs, but I kind of sort of wouldn't be with the dogs. Like I wasn't listening to um, a podcast or talking on the phone the way that I see many people doing when they're walking their dogs. So mm -hmm. there was some effort on my part to be present, at least for the dogs. But at some point during the pandemic, I started noticing birds. And then I started listening for the birds. And now when I'm out with the dogs in the morning, I'm listening. And since I started listening for the birds, now I be, I've, I've, I've come to an appreciation of all of the things that can come in through my ears in the morning. And the world is a much, much richer place and actually a much more interesting place than the, the, the space between my two ears that I was inhabiting before I sort of picked on, up on this habit of actively listening when I take the pups out in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've had a, a similar experience. Like um, early on in COVID, I started doing like a, a standing practice. And I'd always been doing different, playing with different ideas of contemplation or meditation or anything. And I started doing a standing practice at the beginning and I've been doing it since. And today I was out in the park and it was raining. Mm. And standing under like a little awning. And it was really amazing to stand there for a long period of time and just hear the rain, mm -hmm. you know? And I think you're right. I think that like our, our, our world is so busy that like these things that are really magical are happening all around us. And we kind of walk right by it mm -hmm. with our face in something or, our, or something plugged into our ears or simply living in the future or in the past, mm -hmm. you know? So planning or, you know, analyzing something that happened to us earlier or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you feel like you have conversations like this with people now at this point in COVID or at any other point where like you, you, cause I've had these conversations where people are suddenly reevaluating how they spend their time or mm -hmm. where they focus their energies or their intentions because they've had this moment to kind of do like a collective. <sighs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see the different directions that that evaluation can, can go. So I've heard people talk about how they now realize they actually don't either need or want as many friends as they had before. And that, in fact, they want to be, they're quite happy with a, a fewer interactions, but interactions of greater quality. And at the same time, I've heard people talk about really valuing the sense of a broader community and especially social responsibility even more. So I think one of the things that I've heard a lot um, uh, up here in Canada and in Ontario, where I live, is reevaluating the social safety net and, and reevaluating um, capitalism in its current guise, um, because the, the pandemic has certainly um, brought into even greater 
uh, apparent some of the flaws of our existing systems. Mm. And that's interesting coming from a place that's, you know, even more socialized than the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my, my wife and I, we both hold Canadian passports. And mm-hmm. even just realizing like, oh, well, we can live in a place where just the thought of healthcare doesn't need to be weighing us down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you as know? long as it's only healthcare of certain types. Mm. So, you know, certainly a few things that, that have come to light here is the is long-term care for people who require long-term care, which would typically be people who are older, how expensive that is, how poorly it's regulated um, is, is certainly one of the things that has been brought to light. Mm. Uh, simple things like dental care, that's not covered here either. So it's really, it's, it's, it's better than nothing. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want to have to pay for private health, health insurance the way many countries in the world, including yours, mm-hmm. um, require of their citizens. Um, but it's not perfect here either. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, there's, there's all these questions that start to kind of like come out of this event about like where time is spent, where energy is spent, where money is spent, um, you know, questions of what it means to, to, to be human. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of like those things mm-hmm. coming up. Um, I even feel like I, I witness it in, in movement. There's a lot of people questioning like, okay, well, what, what am I really doing? How am I really spending my time? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, is, is, is it, is it work or is it play or, or, or what is this thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And am I doing too much of it? Um, and am I focused, so focused, I think that this is a real risk for health professionals. Am I so focused on health that I ignore some other aspects of my life that might be equally important? Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess, how do I define health? Mm-hmm. And can I, can I make that uh, definition perhaps a little bit broader? Or what are some of the assumptions that I'm making around it? What are some of the assumptions I'm making around the importance of what I'm doing? I'm reading Daniel Lieberman's book right now, uh, Exercised. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm only into about the first chapter of it. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm not uh, misrepresenting what he is saying in that book. But uh, an idea that I just came across is the idea that we're not actually evolved to exercise in the way that we do, even though it's very good for us and important. Um, And that if we were simply to exercise moderately for about an hour a day, we would be matching in terms of energy expenditure uh, what a, a person living in a hunter-gatherer or a pre-industrialized uh, farming context would be going through. So I think that you know we have this interesting idea that you know hunter-gatherers and uh, pre-industrial farmers they were working every single day really, really, really hard for the entire day. Um, when in fact, especially with hunter-gatherer societies, there was a whole heck of a lot of sitting around going on with you know, tremendous energy expenditure for a brief period of time, but it, it really wasn't this idea of the equivalent of hitting the gym for four or five hours. Mm-hmm. And it evolved and changed with the seasons mm-hmm. and daylight and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. We have, we have a tendency to like, I don't know, romanticize the grind. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but like, I mean, I've, I've been in that place where I was training five, six hours a day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when we talk about health and in some ways, you know, humanness, like, you know, what, what are the things like, what are our, we have this full range of sensory experiences and we're, you know, we, we are highly social. We crave so, social networking so much so that um, marketing is turned com- the word community into a buzzword, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. prey on like primal instincts. So we have all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, so like we just have this tendency to like pick one thing, amplify it, and then turn it into a grind. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I can certainly see that. Um, and I think that, I think that all of us experience that to some degree, to some, perhaps because we really value expertise. Like we want to be good at something and our culture values expertise. In fact, I I don't think that our culture really values generalists as much as it values experts. Um, and you know, who am I to say which way is quote unquote the right way? I think perhaps there could be a little bit more of a balance there, but I, I, I think the idea of, of becoming a generalist is incredibly attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that perhaps I was a little bit protected from being, becoming a gym rat because I was never really that active until mm-hmm. I was in my 50s. And uh, I was never really drawn to any of the um, movement practices or sports that I saw out there around me. Doesn't mean that I was completely sedentary, but I wasn't really that interested in it. So when I started my movement practice and I became interested in something, I would do it, I would commit to it for 10 minutes a day. Yes, you heard correctly, 10 minutes a day. Uh, and the 10 minutes a day was simply my time that I couldn't say no to. I could say no to 15 minutes a day, believe it or not. I could find reasons to not practice if it was 15 minutes, but 10 minutes, I couldn't say no to. And of course, you know, once you practice for 10 minutes, you get interested in something and you're going to practice for a little bit longer. But I was never the guy who was going to be spending hour upon hour upon hour uh, in the gym perfecting this, that, or the other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I still kind of really hold on to that 10 minute practice because there are days when I really don't feel like practicing. And I say, 10 minutes, David, you can do 10 minutes. I'll get up and I'll do 10 minutes. And sometimes it's just 10 minutes. And sometimes it turns into an hour and 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. But um, that's kind of like hunting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some days you might be like, oh, you know, I, we, we got to go, we got to go get a, a rabbit or a deer or, or something. And mm-hmm. some days it's like, well, you walk off, you walk out of like the, the site and all of a sudden, boom, the meal's mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and you drag it back 10 feet. And some days it's like, well, we're going out for, we'll be gone for three days. Who knows? Ah, oh, Kyle, I think you and I now need to write a book, something along the lines of hunting wellness. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. So when you you start, you said you started like a movement practice like in your fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, what what did that look like, and what inspired it? 
Um, up until that time, I, I don't want to misrepresent what I'd been doing. So as I said, I was never, I was never sedentary. So I went through a whole gamut of things from, I would say the age of 30 onwards. So, yeah, I did go to the gym for a while, for a few months and gave that up. And then I swam for a few months and gave mm -hmm. that up. And there would be intervening periods of time that would just be like, you know, I'd swim for two months and then I'd do nothing for eight months other than walk dogs. I've always had dogs. So there was always walking involved. Um, and I, I, I started, you know, cycling, not seriously. I wasn't part of a club or anything, but I'd go out on my bicycle and, you know, try to beat my time from the night, uh, from the night before or whatever. And uh, then I got interested in a martial art called Aikido, which is a soft martial art. So mm -hmm. off sometimes known as the art of peace, where basically you're taking your opponent's energy and redirecting it uh, with the stated philosophical intent to uh, do no harm to your, or minimize the amount of harm that you're going to do to your opponent while keeping yourself safe. And this attracted me for a whole bunch of reasons intellectually. And um, the first day that I went and tried it out, I got to roll around on the floor and I, I immediately took to rolling. So I just loved the rolling. So I practiced that for about eight years. And even though I wasn't really practicing it all that seriously, so by all that seriously, I'd go maybe two or three times a week to a class that lasted an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. And I was getting injured and I was beginning to feel it in my bones. And there was a bit of a situation where I began to feel that um, I was experiencing some ageism within the... Um, the, the studio, the dojo where I was practicing. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, I found uh, that I had a certain mental frame of my own that was not particularly healthy, which was I was always comparing myself to other people. So at one point, I decided I wasn't enjoying this, that this was something that I was doing for my so-called leisure time. I could be doing any number of other things. Why was I continuing to practice something that sometimes was injuring me, sometimes making me angry, and sometimes bringing me to evaluate myself in ways that were incredibly self-critical? So I stopped. And when I stopped, of course, I realized, okay, what am I going to do to try to stay at least somewhat active, keeping in mind that I had never really been that active at all. So my period doing Aikido was the most active time in my life. What am I going to do to try to stay at least somewhat healthy? And I had an old kettlebell that was collecting dust in the basement. So I looked around for a studio that taught kettlebell, figuring, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this properly. So let's take some lessons. And I fell into a wonderful studio, um, Spirit Loft, here in Toronto, um, with uh, 
Catalina Moraga and Andre Talbot are the, the co-founders and, and directors, and they are true movement generalists. And some of the things that I had really enjoyed in movement were the things that I was being offered as a practice in this particular studio. So sometimes I got to crawl around on the floor. Sometimes I got to roll around on the floor. Sometimes I got to move like an ape and a monkey. Sometimes I got to try a handstand against the wall. And all of these things were so healthy for me because it was, I was being given the opportunity to try things, but I was trying them in a context where people were encouraging of me and looking at, okay, David, how can we do this so that you can do it rather than you simply being frustrated or beating yourself up about it? Uh, and that was mind changing for me. And it made me want to practice more because I was experiencing success. I was in that and still am. I, I was in that um, zone of practice where it's not too easy. And so I feel that I'm growing, but it's not so hard that I feel that all I'm really doing is practicing failure. Mm -hmm. My practice through Spirit Loft has been as much a mental practice as, as anything. So you mentioned the warmth and the positivity that you see in my Instagram account. That did not come at all naturally to me. That in itself is as much of the practice as the movement. Uh, so getting out of that um, purely goal-driven, um, no pain, no gain mindset. I have nothing against goals. I think goals are really important and they can be a fantastic way of moving forward. But there is something, uh, there's, there is something about being too married to a specific goal um, and, and feeling that you're a failure if you have to change that goal. Uh, and, and also getting, getting married to a specific goal also means that you get a little bit, um, you have a little bit of tunnel vision so that maybe you can't see that other thing out there that is just as interesting, maybe more interesting to you. So this idea of becoming a movement generalist and trying to stay alert to the ways that I want to learn how to move rather than simply to arbitrary goals that are out there as you know, major benchmarks on Instagram. So for example, I still can't do a freestanding free handstand of more than about 10 seconds on a good day. Um, but I don't really care about a handstand in that way anymore. I care about pushing. I care about upper body strength. I care about being able to move in a variety of ways, but I don't really care about the handstand as much anymore. It's not that I don't care about it. I still practice it every now and then, but I don't have that arbitrary, oh, got to get a 30 second hold, got to get a 60 second hold anymore because that was no longer serving me. So I was able to recognize when something that I was doing was something that I was just doing because, and I couldn't even really answer the because versus something that I really wanted to do and I had a good reason for wanting to try it, or I was just interested in it or curious, or it was new. I am a, I am a bit addicted to novelty, I have to admit. Well, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, and I'm addicted to change, you know? And I think sometimes people uh, are not addicted to change. Oftentimes I think people are not addicted to change. To, mm -hmm. to steal some language from a, from a good Canadian, um, Stephen Jenkinson, Mm -hmm. um, 
he talks about the addiction to competence, mm-hmm. right? And to me, that captures a little bit of that like unwillingness to change. So we might, for instance, like in a movement practice, get a hold of, we might fill our bag nice and high with our, our collection of things, mm-hmm. but we want to stay competent in those things, then only play with those things in that bag, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe asking, well, what does it look like if I take some of this mm-hmm. stuff out of this bag and go look for some other things to put in there and then take those out too, and then go search again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of one of my favorite sayings that I actually used to communicate to my students as a, when I was a high school teacher was anything that's worth doing is worth doing badly. Mm-hmm. In, in the, for so many things, we have to pass through the gateway of feeling incompetent, of feeling awkward, of feeling bad at something in order to get better at it. This is you so rightly point out, if I only practice what I'm already good at, there's value in that practice, but I shouldn't delude myself into believing that practicing in that way is going to make me any better. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the only reason to practice is to get better. There are a whole bunch of, of, of really important reasons to practice what we already know. But if I have as the goal to improve or to um, increase my vocabulary of movement and all of the tools in my toolbox, then I have to risk feeling pretty awkward, feeling like I'm you know, not as good at something as virtually everybody else in the room and being completely okay with that, recognizing that that's probably an indication that I'm in the right room. Judgment, judgment's a really challenging thing to navigate. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've, I think I've spent the, the better part of this past year really reflecting on, on judgment and, and, you know, my, my desire to, to reduce that in the spaces that I kind of facilitate mm-hmm. because I think it, it, it causes us oftentimes to like get in our own way and, and kind of lean into our competence as opposed to like, well, Let's, let's maybe perhaps celebrate imperfection and impermanence a little bit and mm-hmm. get, in, get into some of these other places and, and welcome the change. I think that recognizing when we're trying to wrap ourselves into that warm blanket of competence mm-hmm. um, and just recognizing how comforting and how nice and familiar that feels, right? But also at the same time recognizing that the things that i'm competent at are are so small mm-hmm. so i can only really be competent at a very small number of things but there are so many other things out there that are really really interesting um and, and really fun and can really bring a different connection with myself, a different connection with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and do I want to rob myself of those things because I have to feel that I'm good at what I'm doing the entire time? I think this is a particular risk for older people because the trajectory of our lives is such that when we're young, we're really not good at very much and we stay being not good at very much uh, for quite a long time. And some of us go to college and university and whatever. And even when we graduate, we think we know a lot. 
we think we're competent, but the first time we actually try to apply our knowledge out in the world, we realize mm, not really very good at this. But then as we move through our jobs and we get the promotions and we get the experience, and all of those things, we begin to feel that competence so that by the time you know, the average person reaches the age of 50 or, or, or beyond, they've lost the habit of feeling incompetent. And, and because unless we invite incompetence into our lives, it becomes scarier to experience it. So I think kind of befriending that sense of incompetence by trying new things is really important. When I was a teacher, I would actively seek out something new to learn, something brand new to learn every single year. Because unless I did that, I, I would have difficulty remembering what it was like to be a true beginner. And my students were always true beginners. So I needed to refresh myself in what that felt like and how uncomfortable that could be so that I could be more compassionate toward them and, and, and to support them in more meaningful ways because I would have a better understanding of what they were experiencing. I kind of got goosebumps when you, when you said that, when you talked about um, uh, doing something new every year as an educator. That's a really beautiful thing because I, I, I've, I've experienced that where you, you enter a room and I remember it being in school as well, where some teachers, when I can look back on it now, really exuded compassion and empathy for like where you might be coming from, you know, entering a certain kind of material for the first time. And then there were teachers who with time, with competence and things like didn't have that same compassion. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a, that's a very brilliant and simple thing speaking to our like appreciation for simple simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What a tool. What, a, what, a, what an idea. It, it really served me very well. And, and I would try to pick things that I didn't think that I was going to be good at. Mm -hmm. So I would choose things that I was pretty sure were going to be hard. I'm curious now, uh, because we, we, you know, you mentioned the topic of generalists and I realized from doing this podcast, it's so fascinating to kind of see everybody's approach to what it, what being a generalist is. And mm -hmm. I'm not somebody with an answer, but I have my own kind of North star for what that looks like. So I'm curious mm -hmm. for you, like when you think of being a generalist, what, what, it, what does that mean? And from a, maybe a movement perspective, and then I guess I would extend it to a human perspective. That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. I think I'm actually going to have to quote a poem. I'm sorry. I used That's to be perfect. an English teacher and it's, it's a little bit of, a, of, of an old habit. There's a, a wonderful uh, poet named um, Denise Levertov. And the, the poem that I'm referencing is called Overland to the Islands. And I just love the title, just the title alone, because of course it's impossible. How can I get to the islands overland? So overland to the islands, it makes no sense. But the main feature of this poem is a dog. 
so the first line of the poem is, let us go much as that dog goes intently haphazard. And the last words of the poem are every step an arrival. And I think that that's what being a movement generalist is. So I have an intention, but there's also a haphazardness. So I know that I want to get a little stronger if possible, or explore what strength looks like at my age. I want to look at what mobility looks like. I want to see what endurance is. I want to build the skills of balance and coordination, agility, power, and strength. So there's nothing new here. So I have that kind of general idea of, yeah, I want to build all of those things that I don't want to get so caught up in building one that I ignore the other things. So for example, getting strong at the expense of mobility or coordination or agility, or getting more agile at the expense of strength. So I have certain intents that I might cycle through those intents in a, a very almost traditional approach to fitness where I'm using the idea of periodization so that I'm not getting stuck in one thing. But there's also this haphazardness about it. So if there's something that is feeling like my body wants to explore that, I'm going to go for that. And I try to look at every step truly as an arrival so that what can I take out of this right now that is maybe going to take me off in another direction or confirm the direction that I'm going in. So it's this constant sense of, okay, I'm, I'm heading off in that direction and I'm gonna keep going in that direction, but I might actually head off in this other direction for a ways but I'm still gonna keep coming back to this overall vague sense if I want to get to this particular place. But I don't really need to get there right away. And the meandering route can help me to value, I guess, for lack of a better term, I, the, the cliche of valuing the, the, the journey rather than the destination. Well, and, and I hear you kind of talking a lot about kind of, hmm, I feel like I sometimes say a lot of the same things. So I always think about like different ways to like approach similar ideas, but I, it's like, um, it's not about being in control, right? Control would be like, all I care about is that destination. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to like force my way through that door, mm -hmm. but kind of like, it's kind of like life. We all know where we're headed here. Right. And, yes. and we're yes. on that journey. Mm -hmm. um, and I can either try to control that and walk directly into that the way that I want it to go. And it's going to cause a lot of suffering mm -hmm. and misery to, to do it this exact way. Or I can be on this journey to where we all know we're headed to and just be a little more welcoming of the uncertainty mm -hmm. and let the twists and turns happen make the discoveries, make the surprises and kind of like have that kind of controlled accident to our destination. Isn't it nice to be surprised? It's my, it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. It, it, in, yes, there are 
really crappy surprises like COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I don't know, I, I really like surprises. Mm -hmm. And I like to put myself in situations where I might surprise myself. So this is kind of going back to the idea of, 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 of how, 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 how competence is and, and being stuck on competence can be very, very harmful because if I'm only staying within my, the boundaries of my own competence, then the opportunities that I have for discovery to su surprise myself, to find something new, uh, those are very, very limited. Perhaps not non-existent, but very, very, very limited. Right, and then what happens when life inevitably throws you a surprise mm -hmm. and you're unwelcoming of surprises? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. That, that's a difficult situation or a difficult corner to suddenly land in. And maybe mm -hmm. I think we saw a lot of that with COVID. Mm -hmm. I think we have a culture that's really like, wants to try to control. Very much so. Rather than a culture that's uh, welcoming of surprise and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we've, we've kind of watched what that looks like play out here. Yeah. yeah. Be because it's all uncertain. I, mm -hmm. I don't know how, when I'm going to leave this world in mm -hmm. what kind of condition, what the world's going to be like tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the world's going to be like in the next five minutes. So when I, when I try to be in control of everything, I'm creating a recipe for my own unhappiness. Whereas if I can practice embracing uncertainty and certainly a movement practice is a contained environment with which I can invite that uncertainty, then I can become friends with it. And I can survive a whole bunch of things that maybe I didn't think that I really could survive. I remember one of the first times I went to the studio that I referenced earlier, we were invited to do handstands against a wall. And I'm a, a bit stubborn. So I was going to do this handstand against the wall. And there was another guy in class that was about my age. So because I had still that frame of mind of comparing myself to others, not only was I going to do the handstand against the wall, I was going to do the handstand for just as long as he did it. <laughs> So we get up there in this handstand and I'm just trembling, but I'm going to stay up there. So finally he comes down, but I didn't have enough strength to come down. So I literally slid down the wall, kind mm -hmm. of slithered onto the floor to come out of this handstand. But what that taught me was, hey, I can survive that. I, you know, Maybe it probably wasn't a very good idea to do that. But unless I had experienced that, uh, I guess, you know, funny moment um i i wouldn't really know that i could survive it and i was constantly being challenged uh especially when i first started and it still happens uh, uh andre talbot is still my movement coach and he still has to remind me to try something because i think that there is a little bit of reticence a little bit of uncertainty and a temptation to say no i can't do that or no that's too scary no i won't do it and you know, sometimes at this point, the, the, the voice is now in my head and it's just try, just try. You don't know unless you try. Mm -hmm. um, so frequently I surprise myself with actually what I can do, or at least I might not be able to do it, but I can see 
just a chink of a doorway there's that little bit of an opening that I can go through and then I can make the opening bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger so I don't have to get it right away. Um, and, and that's fun too, to have something that is complex enough that I don't need to get it right away and that I can explore how to create openings for myself. Mm -hmm. well, and, then, and then when we talk about trying something new, more often than not, there's a whole lot more that we learn that we can't talk about than what we can talk about, mm -hmm. you know, like those, like the, 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 the experiential moments that like feed our intelligence. Right. I actually think that that's something that coaches could get better at. So I've I, been very lucky to have coaches who have helped me to do that. And my experience as a teacher taught me to do that with my students <laughs> But I think that when as coaches, we focus on largely the external measurable manifestations of health and wellness, we ignore what I would argue are the more significant barriers to fitness. So what's the biggest barrier to fitness? I don't practice anything at all. Mm -hmm because I don't want to practice. Well, why don't I want to practice? What are some of, what is the mindset that is preventing me and you know more than half of the North American population from getting up off the couch and moving even just a little bit? I think that it points to, uh, I would say, I, I, I don't think that we can say that the fitness industry has been successful when so few people are interested in in moving or able for financial reasons or reasons having to do with other socioeconomic factors to participate in the the, the, the types of movement that would lead to uh, improved wellness. Yeah, I think that there's a huge mindset um, factor there in terms of well, I can't do it. No, I've never been good at it. No, I can't learn that. Um, no, that guy's better at it than I am. I don't like feeling incompetent. I don't like feeling sweaty. All sorts of reasons that we can give ourselves not to, not to try something, right? I, I, and sometimes I come back to that, you know, that addiction to competence thing. It's so much of that, like, you know, that plays to like fear of judgment. You know, I, I think we do a disservice by, you know, always getting caught up in things that have definitions, you know, because then there's a right and a wrong mm -hmm. when like, it's so much more vast than that. Mm -hmm. and, and when you look at so much of what is out there in on Instagram that, mm -hmm. is, that would be posted by fitness professionals and it's, it's posted not with any you know, mean intent, but when all I see is somebody who can already do something that I think is absolutely impossible. Where, where's my entry point? Mm -hmm. So me seeing somebody do, you know, a, a, a one-armed handstand is in fact a disincentive because it is so, so far away from anything that I can even imagine as possible. I think that the role of fitness professionals is to open our eyes to what we can do, to what 
the possibility is for us. Yeah. So by only demonstrating their tricks, and I know there's a great delight in demonstrating what their bodies can do, and I don't blame them for that, but maybe we could find a little bit of a better balance where there is more out there that suggests an that suggests entry points for people. It's something that can tweak somebody's curiosity. That's act that could be actually pretty small. You're you're making me think of a conversation I had with Shira Yaziv here mm-hmm. on the podcast, and I had the opportunity to meet her in person a couple of weeks ago when I was in Oakland, <clears throat> and I felt obligated not obligated I felt that it was important to let her know that she said she shared something with me that fundamentally changed how I approached teaching and made me reflect on people who affected me as teachers. And what she had said was, I'm not so interested in teaching. I'm interested in facilitating. Mm-hmm. And she said, the difference is to me, and I might be getting the quote not perfectly right, but it's something like this. Um, if I'm teaching, that means I'm showing up thinking that I know what you need to learn and I need to teach that to you. But if I'm facilitating, I'm just creating opportunities for each person to learn what they need to learn in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it hit me with a bang. Mm-hmm. And it from that day forward almost, how I approached groups totally changed. I remembered people who I had learned things from and and been facilitated by that all of a sudden I was coming back to their ideas and what they were doing because I was like, well, that was so much of that magic. Mm -hmm. I don't need to walk out of every session being like, I know what these people learned because I came there with that plan, Mm -hmm. but rather walking out being like, hey, what did you learn? What happened there? Or hearing people kind of be like, oh, this was this for me. Oh, really? Because it was like that for me. And both answers are totally right. And then there's all that, as I said earlier, like the information that we can't talk about, right? We, there's the stuff that makes it to the surface that we can say, I learned this and I learned this. But then there's all that, that deeper down intelligence that we can't, we can't talk about that people might've absorbed in that moment. And it could have been through social interaction. It could have been from an environmental situation, but like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I think that is just simply brilliant. And it it makes me think of breaking down the hierarchical nature of teaching in whatever guise, whether it's, you know, teaching in high school or teaching as as, as a, a fitness instructor or a personal trainer breaking down that idea of there's a certain hierarchy where you know the teacher is here and the student is here well the student actually has more knowledge in some ways than the teacher the the student knows themselves way better than the teacher right so Mm -hmm. so you know it's 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 the sense of not just the the hierarchy of individual it's the hierarchy of types of knowledge well since when does the teacher's knowledge matter the teacher's knowledge about you know cars and um you know endurance and strength and proper technique for uh a a back squat when when why is that more important than the individual's knowledge of themselves and and doesn't there have to be a, a mutual coming together on an equal footing especially since 
you know, as a, as a client, I'm actually paying this fitness professional and you know, maybe I should be seen on an equal footing. But even if there were no pay involved, still you have, you know, two human beings that are, that are working together to achieve a, a common goal. And one person has a different type of knowledge than the other, but it doesn't make it better. It, it sounds to me like really approaching fitness and teaching from the perspective of decolonizing mm -hmm. the practice of, of, of teaching. So there, there, there was a saying, even when I was uh, qualifying to become a teacher, so this isn't a, this isn't a new idea by any, uh, by any means. So there was the idea of the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. And I'm sure that you can tell from the way I'm talking that I was always more interested in being the guide on the side. I taught creative writing for most of my career. And my goal as a creative writing teacher was to make my students independent of me. So they needed to have an understanding of what worked in terms of whatever it was they wanted to write, whether it was, you know, they wanted to become poets or they, they, they wanted to be writing great short stories. There are certain things that work better than others. And there are certain skills that you kind of need to learn and a certain awareness that you need to have to make something kind of sort of work. But my goal was always to, to ask them the questions enough that eventually they would start to ask the questions of themselves. So that by the end of our time together, it was, it was my goal and I would state this at the beginning of the year, I want to become the little voice in your head. So I want that voice. I want you to take that voice and make it your own so that now you're asking yourself the, the, the questions that are meaningful, that are going to help you to write the kind of thing and write in the way that you want to write and to do that consciously rather than accidentally. So that when something works, you know why it works. So you have a better sense of why it worked than when it didn't. And, and you're talking about this thing that I just had a conversation with someone about out in the park. So before we hopped on here, I was out in the park doing some practicing and dancing and playing around. And I was having this conversation and I keep talking about this idea of like wishing to teach people to fish rather than getting them fish. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked about, I don't know if you've ever watched Chef's Table. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, there's one in maybe the first season and I forget the chef's name, but he was in Patagonia and he would cook in the ground a lot mm -hmm. and he was mm -hmm. surrounded by his apprentices. And at some point they talk about how at some point he turns to each apprentice and says, now you have to leave. Mm -hmm. It's, it's done. It's over. Mm -hmm. Like now you go and do your thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, why am I so jarred by that? But I think it's so amazing. Like, what is it that seems so new about that, but so beautiful about it? And I realized that we, in potentially coming back to maybe a little bit of where we started about talking about capitalism and things, is we want to create dependence mm -hmm. as opposed to independence mm -hmm. because there's not as much money in independence, mm -hmm. right? Or teaching people to fish or teaching people to write. We want them to keep coming back and putting the dollars in our pocket. Um, so these things don't, go together oftentimes, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and 
I, I, I believe in this, this thing that you're talking about and what I witnessed on the chef's table um, and teaching people to fish because there's a real beauty in that independence and being able to take that into the world and then add their spices to it. And then people learn from that and we get to learn from what they've done with it. Absolutely. And, and we seem to be circling back to the idea of expertise as well. So, you know, yeah, it's great to be an expert mm -hmm. in some things, but I think that we leave a little bit too much up to the experts. There, there was a saying about teaching that used to really, really annoy me until I, I actually looked it up and I noted that I had been ignoring one word. So the, 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 the quotation is something along the lines of um, education is too important to be left in the hands of the educators. So that was what I thought it was, but it was actually education is too important to be left solely in the hands of the educators. So I think that there is a role for the expert, but there's also a role for the amateur. And, and I think that there's actually nothing more beautiful than to be an amateur in my own life. Because amateur, it, it comes from the root meaning love. And, and if I'm an amateur in my own life, then I am doing something where I'm finding love in what I'm doing. Something that I find really sad is in some of the cultural products that we now have. So maybe things have changed now that there is not such a hard and tight uh, way of becoming a musician, but certainly for a number of years before YouTube sensations, it was very, very difficult for anybody to become a musician unless they were truly in the, or already practically in the music industry. And I think that there's a certain sadness that I feel when I think about how music is being left almost too much to the experts. So people, I don't think, sing as much just for the sake of singing or you know, pick up an instrument and are really bad at it just for the sake of, 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 of learning it. Um, I think that there is almost this drive to become so good at it that then we could start being paid money for it. And it's the same with lots of things like cooking, outsourcing the delight of our cooking to take out, um, outsourcing the delight of writing to only reading books. And I'm not suggesting that, that it should be only amateurs doing things. But I, I, I think that there's a balance to be had between the expert and the amateur. And there's something nice about embracing something just for the sake of doing it without any real expectation of becoming so good at it that then you could begin to get money or renown from doing it. Mm -hmm. When you see that in movement, you see that in dance, right? People are like, I won't even go near that because I, I can't do it. Like, as you were talking about, like the person who's on 
online or, or whatever they're seeing on, on the thing. And, and yeah, it can be preventative when we, when we don't celebrate the amateur more. Yeah. Like outsourcing dance. Mm -hmm. Now dance is something that I have just come to because as a man, a white man, my age dance wasn't really something that we were encouraged to do. Um, except for certain reasons, which generally had to do with picking up women when you're <laughs> in your 20s, right? But I didn't dance. I didn't dance for years and years and years. And I've only recently discovered kind of rhythmic movement again and how much I love it. And this sense of this, a certain sadness that I have around any delight in dance that I had for 25 years was in watching other people dance. And maybe, you know, this, while I was watching them dance, nodding my head, keeping time, maybe tapping a foot. But, you know, the delight that can be had in that, I'm no great dancer. I, I'm not even sure I have that fantastic a sense of rhythm. But getting to move my body in, in ways that I haven't moved it before and try to seek that rhythm and you know, maybe being with other people where all we're doing is dancing, it's, it's a great, great delight. And to have that outsourced because of cultural expectations around dance and what dance means and who does dance and who doesn't do dance, it's just incredibly sad. We also then, what we're talking about too, is like basically outsourcing creativity, mm -hmm. right? Like when we dance, like all we're doing is having like one creative moment after another mm -hmm. when we write if we sit down to write like we're having our our moment of creativity which is through discovery and surprise and all these things and and more and more we like um we reduce our our, our creative opportunities and give them mm -hmm. to someone else to do for us when <laughs> when we talk about being able to walk into an uncertain world we should probably be pretty creative mm -hmm. agreed and to, to go right back to where we began the conversation, I would say one of the cornerstones of creativity is observation. It's not coming up with something out of nothing. It's observing what's there, being able to see it in relationship to other things, so maybe seeing different relationships, different possibilities than we did before. But it begins with observation. Right. It's like observation leads to imagination. Imagination leads to creativity. Creativity leads to, leads to innovation. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. I spoke to um, Winston Reynolds on the podcast here and he talked, he told this really wonderful story and basically reflecting on how much noise we have in our world, our world, but he went and did a, a workshop or maybe just some time taking classes with, Josef Bartz, who's in Germany. And I guess he showed up in the very first day, he took everybody out to the garden and just said, I just want you to go sit and be bored for about 45 minutes. Just go, just go be with it. And he talks about sitting down and just feeling like, wow, I can't remember the last time I did this. Mm -hmm. But that's that obs observing. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I get to just be and observe. I get to be bored. Mm -hmm. You know, 
like, you know, we almost like stigmatize these things, like that they're not as high value as doing Mm -hmm. when like all of all the magical doing that we see happening around us might've begun with the observing and the boredom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't get bored anymore. That's, that's interesting. I just realized that. And I, and I think that it has to do with um, what you're talking about, which is really looking at things. Um, seeing everything as a window for that observation, even if it's an observation of my own response to something, that can be interesting. Um, yeah, so kind of going back to that idea of being available to what's there, right there in front of me right now, uh, rather than dismissing what's right there in front of me right now, because I think that that other thing that's happening in five minutes is more important, or this thing that happened yesterday, I need to think about. I saw that I had, I spoke to somebody who gave the most perfect example of this, of what you're describing. So I was in Brooklyn before COVID and if I ever wore a wristwatch, I wore like a really thin one and I would have it turned so that the face of it was on the inside of my wrist. It was always kind of easier to look at, but also I would do so much work on my hands and I was teaching class that like, if the face was on the normal side, my hand would bump into it. Yeah. So I wore it on the other side and this guy stops me on the street and he says, do you always wear your watch that way? And I said, I guess I do, but I mean, I don't always wear a watch, but when I do, I, I think I wear it this way for what I do. So he asked kind of what I do and he says, oh, interesting. Well, I'm a photographer and I, I shoot a, a lot of things, but I'm doing this interesting series on people who wear their watches this way. So I'm curious, can I take some photos of you? Mm-hmm. So I was like, sure. And he asked what I did. So he asked if we could come and take them at the studio. So he shows up and he reveals to me, I mean, he shoots for like things like Nat Geo and big things. He pulls out his camera and he pulls out a bundle of rolls of film. And I said, oh, you're shooting on film. That's amazing. I feel like I never see anyone shoot on film. And he says, yeah, well, it, it, I enjoy it for various reasons. But one of the things was, is that it keeps me in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then he says, because my impression or my impersonation of somebody shooting on a digital camera is this. So he, he pretends to hold up a camera and take a photo and then look down at the screen to see the photo that he just took. Mm-hmm. And he said, if I'm looking at that screen, I'm missing what's happening around me. Mm-hmm. If I know that I can't look at whatever the photo is, I take my photo and then my eyes stay up and I'm looking and, and sensing what's happening around oh. me. So I'm always here and now. I love that story. I thought it was so poignant and I thought it was so, it captured so much of the world now in that story. Mm-hmm. And I wished for that. I wished for, for more of that. Yes. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful story. I'm going to have to steal that. You Please that, do. That, yeah, that is an amazing um, kind of extended metaphor. for. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing image for how so much of our lives are mediated by 
the immediate feedback we get from a screen, how we seek that immediate feedback from a screen and our lives are mediated because of that. And the moment that, the moment that we spend looking at that screen to evaluate what we're doing can take us away from what we're actually experiencing at the moment. Again, I'm, I'm, I, I want to caution myself against either or thinking in that sometimes being able to see what I've created on a screen is an incredible teaching moment for me. It's an incredible learning moment. But if that's all I do, then I'm not living the experience that I have sought to begin with. Well, I mean, I've grown to understand more and more about this like collaboration between like the two sides of any coin, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but we are like a culture that always wants to lean hard one way, you know, mm -hmm. they want to be like strong, but not flexible, or they want to be sympathetic, but not parasympathetic or, mm -hmm. you know, all the, the things. And, you know, we're in a place where we're so much ego and so much identity, right. Then people want to lean hard in the other direction. They almost like, I want to dissolve the ego. Mm -hmm. it, it, it totally non-existent. But I'm like, well, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, if the ego didn't matter, we probably wouldn't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. What is that like happy balance between these two things? Mm -hmm. You know, and as you're kind of talking about like, well, what is the relationship that exists between the doing and the non-doing or the, the present moment and reflection, you mm -hmm. know? Um, because I think people now are quick to just like choose the team and be like, I need to go hard one way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. You see that in politics for sure. Yeah. 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 Rather than being like, oh, there's, there's a dance. But it seems that so much of what we've talked about today is a, a resisting dualism or resisting simple dualism where it's not this or that. It can be this other thing. It can be these many other things. Uh, and, and just being aware of the opportunities that are out there to see things in those ways and, mm -hmm. and embracing those opportunities rather, being, rather than being caught up in our own sense of self, sense of expertise, uh, sense of needing to know. Um, that, that, that can limit us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When we, yeah, it's almost like, um, we, we, we prevent ourselves from opening our eyes sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. We like, um, and maybe sometimes that's, that comes down to like having limited sensory experience as the way we exist to begin with. You know, we, we're not, it's almost maybe we're not used to walking out and looking and feeling and hearing mm -hmm. in the way that we might've used to been. Well, and what we were talking about earlier in terms of the fear that is associated with doing that, mm -hmm. you know, the fear of maybe having to change my mind about something, you know, the fear of having to change my mind about the world, the fear of having to change my mind about myself um, to realize, oh, hey, maybe I've been mistaken. Maybe I need to apologize to a few people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe there's a different way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like our our theme here, aside from what you said about dualism, is really the celebration of change. Mm -hmm. And even just hearing your story, 
you know, and the willingness to change, you know, when, when the school system was not moving in the direction that aligned with your values and the way you approach movement and, and, you know, your, your, the way you approach education, it's all this, like, to me, like, I keep hearing just like this celebration of change, you know? Yeah, I, I, I do too, because it's all change. Mm-hmm. It's all change. So even if it appears to be the same, if it's on a different day, it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when I think about the things that I, that I love approaching and sharing, it's, it's, I, I often come back nowadays to like imperfection and impermanence and impermanence is, is change, mm-hmm. you know, and whatever this class looks like in the park today is not going to be what the class looks like tomorrow. And rather than trying to make them look and feel the same, what happens if we like celebrate that they're going to be different? That's the thing that I always loved about being a teacher, mm-hmm. that it was never the same class twice, because certainly from one semester to the next, the students changed, which changed the experience completely. Mm-hmm. But also from one day to the next, the students were different and they were in a different place. So it was always this dance of responsiveness to what was there. So you know, going back to Denise Levertov's poem, it was with intention, but also haphazard because it had to be haphazard in response to what was going on around me. Yeah, it, 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 when you said that that line, it it, it always, I, I, I stole it from like an Alan Watts lecture and I don't know where he got it from, but it was like, I always lean into that, that idea of the controlled accident, mm-hmm. which is that thing, mm-hmm. right? And that's that kind of, the balance of like the the certain and the uncertain or the known and the unknown or, you know, just like the welcoming of the surprise in, in any situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and even science, like what is science other than the controlled accident or actually setting up the, the conditions to observe something new? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I really... Uh, I now, I really look forward to the day where I get to take a, a class with you. Um, I don't know. I feel you have, you have that too. Yeah. You have a lot of, you have so much wisdom on education. I feel like I'm going to be sending you messages all the time, whenever some sort of new idea comes to me about facilitating and, and, and educating, because I don't know, you have so much experience and I, and, and there's, there's so many ideas that are always kind of bouncing in and out and around. Well, that's something that I'm actually quite interested in doing is beginning to talk to people in the movement industry about teaching um, and looking at my own pillars, uh, the ones that have stood me in good stead as a teacher and now as a mover, the prime one being compassion and curiosity. And the other things that seem to follow from that would be the curiosity leads to observation, which can lead to creativity, as you and I have already talked about it. There has to be playfulness, uh, but there also has to be critical thinking and some rigor as well. So I, I think that finding ways to bring all of these characteristics mm-hmm. to, into our teaching while decolonizing the teaching and learning experience so that the, the experience of the student is... Um, is valued and and the student gets to share that experience I think is is and and bring their knowledge 
to, uh, to the table is really interesting and, and important. When bringing down, uh, lessening the hierarchy mm -hmm. is, is, is how we welcome back our own curiosity. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're, when we're on someone else's mountain, we, we have the, it's tempting and alluring. And probably what happens quite often is we give up our curiosity to somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, but as you say, like when we start to lower that down a little bit and have less of that kind of structure, then everybody's welcome to have curiosity again. And everybody's curiosity is valuable. Mm -hmm. and, and we can create something completely new. Mm -hmm. I think at that point, um, because different people come to us with different experiences and expectations and it, it can't just be the same for everybody. Um, if people want to, I know that you, you, the Spirit Loft is not open at the moment, mm -hmm. but if people are interested in, you know, studying with you about movement or, or even approaching you as a teacher looking to further their education on teaching or facilitating, what are the, what are the best ways? Are there, are you offering anything? Uh, probably the best way to get in touch with me. I'm, I'm open to having a conversation with just about anybody because I really like having these kinds of conversations. They help me grow. Um, the best way would be through my Instagram account, which is at old school moves, but it's not spelled the usual way. It's O-L-D-S-C-O-O-L-M-O-V-E-S. So there's nothing like schools and books about it. It's more like old cool moves. Oh. But I, yeah, when I started the account, it was in to some degree a, a response for, to what I perceived as a lack of representation of older capable people who who weren't just coming from an athletic background or a, a bodybuilding background. So just regular common folks who could still move pretty well. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, like I said, I, I, I really love and admire the, the, the things that you share there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what else comes out. Well, thank you, Kyle. Like I, the, the, the mutual admiration society is intact here. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, whenever the world is uh, um, a different way, we, we plan on making our way to uh, Toronto for a visit. So, you know, maybe this well, year, maybe it'll have to be next year. Just as soon as you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll be there. We'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll join you for a, a walk with your, with your dogs and we'll, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. And listen to the birds. There exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can't that wait. That would be amazing. David, this was so wonderful. I'm so happy we got to do this. But, you know, as uh, I find myself often saying, we don't have to record the next one. We can just hop on a call whenever uh, the scheduling works for both of us because I'd love to keep chatting. I would too. And you know where to find me. Okay. All right. Have a good All day. Right. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. So wonderful. Have a good one. Take good care.